We tell people that they need to be grateful in their deepest moments of struggle as a way to kind of pull them out of that pain. But in reality, they're left feeling worse. That shame arises that you've mentioned before of like, I'm supposed to be grateful in this time and I can't seem to access it. And so what I've really noticed in the research is that gratitude tends to work more effectively and flow better when it comes from a natural place, when we're able to just engage with it regularly throughout our day and it's not so prescriptive and such a demand on us. Welcome to How To Be Sad, the podcast about how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better. The paperback edition of How To Be Sad, The Key To Happiness is out now if you'd like to find out more. And in the meantime, join me each week as a very special guest shares their own story of how to be sad well. Whitney Goodman is the radically honest psychotherapist behind the hugely popular Instagram account Sit With Wit and the author of Toxic Positivity, a concept she describes as a form of gaslighting. Because meeting struggles with platitudes can shut us down, make us feel shame, or even that we're no longer allowed to feel at all. So forget good vibes only, we're here for all of the vibes today. Welcome to How To Be Sad, Whitney. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. First up, how do we define toxic positivity? I define toxic positivity as the unrelenting pressure to be happy or pursuing happiness and positivity at all costs, no matter what the circumstances. And this is something that we use against ourselves and other people. Okay. And you describe beautifully in the book a scenario where where perhaps this might, people might be familiar with it, might come across perhaps when you've lost your job and you're telling a friend and then instead of any particular uh, gems of wisdom or sympathy, they'll say something like, oh, on the bright side, you'll have so much more time on your hands. (laughs) And then you're actually jobless and you're supposed to make it the fun employed rather than unemployed, you say. Are there other examples that, that you think people might relate to in normal life if they aren't familiar with the term? Yes, a couple are like, everything happens for a reason, time heals all wounds, never give up, just be happy, you have so much to be grateful for, or one of the worst offenders, at least it's not, and then insert something, you know, that they deem more tragic. It's the at least, isn't it? You know when you hear that, (laughs) oh, it's not going to be good. And I was really interested because I think having as a journalist looked into happiness for years and then recently looking at actually I've been completely guilty of this myself, this this idea of focusing on happiness and trying not to face perhaps difficult emotions. You speak really powerfully about some of the exaggerated claims about positive thinking. Can you talk a little bit about this? Because I was very struck by how Americans are uh, outliers in in the desire to avoid sadness. And I think in the UK, (laughs) we're not far behind. Yeah, it seems like this is certainly spreading to more of the world. And I think we've been sold positivity as a cure for so many things, right? Whether it's health, it's going to give us success make us happy, make us rich. And what we see with a lot of the research is that things like positive affirmations actually make people who have low self-esteem or depression feel worse. Uh, Positivity hasn't really been shown to create much better outcomes when it comes to fighting diseases like cancer or other 
autoimmune diseases where positivity is really sold as the cure. And it's almost like we saw one study or somebody got their hands on this and just like ran with it to an extreme. And it's given us this feeling that we have such control over our health and all these other parts of our lives that I think doesn't really exist. And it is, as you you mentioned cancer there, it does seem to be linked with a lot of shame that actually, if anything is going wrong in our life, it's our fault, that we're just not trying hard enough and and that you know bad things only happen to bad people it when when you flip it on its head as you do in the book it's it's quite liberating to think that okay you know the idea of a just world mm-hmm. as many of us have probably come to terms with now is just not true and this sort of reconciling to this and i know personally you've described how you also were striving for happiness and would feel a sort of shame when when perhaps you weren't feeling it how how can you tell a little bit about how your personal realization came about? Yeah, you know, I think growing up and especially as a woman, there was always this feeling of like, I need to present as happy and smiling and like everything was okay. And that was certainly the culture within my family, uh, you know, within the people that I was around. And as I got older and I became a therapist, I started noticing that other people were talking about this and how it made them feel. And when I was seeing it online, I felt like I had this unique view as a therapist of how this was impacting our relationships. And it was a really affirming thing for me to be able to sit with clients and see, oh my gosh, I'm not the only one that feels this way. And that's really what led me to continue talking about this publicly in this way. And I wonder what the impact has been. Are people quite resistant to this message? It's very divided. You know, I I think I have two ideal readers for this book. And one is the person that gets it and is like, wow, I've been looking for a word for this my whole life. And the other reader is the one that kind of recoils at the title of the book or at the message. And I think I have a lot of empathy for those people because I think they're really looking for the secret or the key to what's going to give them everything that they want and hearing that maybe that's not possible or that you've been sold sort of a lie, I think can be really unsettling for people. People are also very scared of being labeled as toxic themselves, which is really not part of my message at all, or them feeling like they're not allowed to say anything or they're being censored in some way. And I think you you beautifully get that across the the idea that we have been sold a lie. So you mentioned affirmations don't work. And I wonder if you can talk a little about happiness and health causation versus correlation. You know, some of the problems with happiness research that perhaps we've been we've been going by for years. Yes. When we look at the research, we're really unable to kind of piece out whether People who get sick get sick because they weren't positive or if they just have less opportunities for happiness and positivity because they are sick. And I I actually had a situation that I think describes this well. I went to a doctor to get diagnosed with something and she was like, I can tell that you're going to do really well with this because you have such a positive attitude. And I was researching my book at the time and I was like, you know... I don't think I have a positive attitude in spite of this. It's because this really isn't impacting my life that much. Um, I don't have a ton of pain. It's not that big of an inconvenience. So I can be more positive about it. 
but the positivity isn't what's helping me stay healthy or take control of my life. It's really the severity of what I'm dealing with. And so people who are sick, they often became that way because of a variety of factors, not because of their thinking. And and unfortunately, like you mentioned, very positive, happy people die from cancer and, and other things all the time. Yeah, and, and the physical impact of suppressing our emotions. I'd, I'd read the Daniel Wegner studies um, about thought suppression, how it just doesn't work, but you talk about actually how it can impact on our sleep, even how sociable we feel. And then we can feel more isolated if we think we can't be this smiley, happy person that the people around us want us to be then we might retreat from them more and feel even worse. Is that right? Exactly. And that's really one of the most negative consequences of toxic positivity is that we're suppressing our emotions, which the research really shows us that that is toxic for us. It can disrupt our sleep, our physical health, and it also leaves us feeling very isolated. So if I think I'm the only one struggling with this. I'm the only one having a hard time. And you might dismiss me when I share it. I'm going to keep it to myself. And it really forces us to all stay very siloed in our issues and feel even more alone, which we know has very negative outcomes for mental health. Yeah, they, they talk about, I, I live in Denmark, and they talk about the suicide paradox, whereby it's they're some of the, the happiest countries in the world in Scandinavia, but also fairly high suicide rates. And it's often suggested it's this, it's this idea that if everyone around you seems happy and you're not feeling that way and you feel almost ungrateful, you feel like you should be happy because you're in this happy country, then you can feel more alone, more nervous to reach out for help. And it's that shame spiral again. It's so damaging. I wonder in terms of putting the onus on the individual, you write instead of focusing on positive thinking as a cure for illness, we might benefit from providing access to a livable wage and housing and safe communities and meaningful relationships, food, security, healthcare. I mean, you'd be very welcome in Scandinavia. It's a very Scandinavian <laughs> view. But I wonder whenever I work in the UK and the US, there's almost a slight hesitation of anything where the idea of a welfare state where people are paying and essentially sharing to look after those less fortunate and the onus is not so much on the individual. I wonder what the reception has been like to your work in more individualistic cultures like the US, like the UK. Yeah, I think, you know, there's certainly some pushback and I feel like there is a middle road when it comes to that stuff. You know, giving people the ability to access these things in a, in a meaningful way, I think, can be very helpful. There is a lot of research on social determinants of health and these things like access to healthcare and a livable wage being much more important than really anything else in promoting people's individual health. Now, I know there's certain schools of thought, of course, where people think that will induce laziness or ungratefulness. And that's not something that I see to be true in my own work as, as a mental health professional. Yes. And, and I wonder, can we talk about gratitude? The idea of seeming ungrateful is something I think many of us worry about. I wonder if there's any sort of gender studies. I feel as though women perhaps worry about that a bit more. And we often read that the effect of, of gratitude um, is, is basically going to solve everything as though a gratitude journal will fix all of your problems overnight. But I, but I understand that actually the effect of gratitude has been exaggerated. The literature and the data 
and the evidence backing it up is fairly scant. So where are we now with that? Yeah, so gratitude has just become another weapon, I think, under this umbrella of toxic positivity that we tell people that they need to be grateful in their deepest moments of struggle as a way to kind of pull them out of that pain. But in reality, they're left feeling worse. That shame arises that you've mentioned before of like, I'm supposed to be grateful in this time and I can't seem to access it. And so what I've really noticed in the research is that gratitude tends to work more effectively and flow better when it comes from a natural place, when we're able to just engage with it regularly throughout our day and it's not so prescriptive and such a demand on us. And I wonder, I'll get on to what we should be doing instead, but I guess there's so much to dig into in terms of toxic positivity that I'd love to carry on here for a little bit. And I'm interested in why we, why you think we fall prey to the platitudes. We want to save the people with, with pain. And when we see someone who's in distress, we want to kind of make that pain go away. But is, that, is there something else at play there? Does it, is it making us feel uncomfortable? Is that why we're keen to step in when people do offer platitudes that perhaps aren't helpful? Yes. So there's a couple of things at play here. These are things that I think we've been socially conditioned to say because we've been hearing them our entire life. I know I have. And we are sort of under this delusion of like, because people say it to me, it's what I should be saying to them. And even if it doesn't really work for us, we should still be saying it. It's the right thing to do. The other thing that's happening that you just mentioned is we feel uncomfortable or we feel inept to solving that person's pain or like we can't do anything about it. So we just try to fix it or make it better. And that can be because we are uncomfortable watching someone else in pain. It can also be because we just want to shut the conversation down, make it go away or not really acknowledge what is going on. And I think this is one of the biggest reasons why toxic positivity comes up is because we aren't learning the skills, you know, as children and and young adults to sit with other people in pain and be able to get ourselves through that time. Yes, it's almost like the social contract is just that you say something nice and or, or try and avoid it altogether. And I wonder what's then, what's the history of that? If we're not learning that now, when we're children, did we ever learn it? Was there a time when when this was less of an issue? Not that I'm aware of. You know, in the US, it's certainly been part of our culture really since the formation of the United States, this idea that we are individuals, you know, the pursuit of happiness is in our constitution. Like this is very much baked into the culture here. And so I think it's just happening now with the millennial generation and Gen Z, where we're seeing people thinking like, oh gosh, I want to talk about my emotions. I want to talk to my child about their emotions because I didn't really learn this until I went to school to become a therapist. And that's really the only reason I did learn it was because it was part of my education. That's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, I think the idea that we we don't know how to talk about these things at all. And I wanted to ask about manifesting. With all of these types of tools like manifestation, I think that it should be empowering to the individual that's using it. And so for some people, it might be a very empowering tool and that's great. But what happens is, is when we twist it and use it as a way 
like positivity to shame people or make them feel like everything bad in their life has happened because they manifested it. And I've seen this happen a lot in my office where people get very afraid of their thoughts. They get very afraid of the things that they're bringing into existence by thinking. And it can be such a slippery slope to tell people that they can manifest anything or that their thoughts create their reality because we know that that's quite complicated and you can't think yourself into necessarily getting cancer or getting in a car accident. You know, I never would want anyone to feel that they were the victim of violence or something like that because they manifested it. And so we have to make sure when we're talking about this topic that we are looking at it from both ends, not just manifesting good things, but also how people might use this to attribute the bad things to them as well. Yeah, that's a fascinating point. It's like the sort of Dr. Seuss, you can't you can't think something up. Mm-hmm. So and so nuance is important, clearly, spoiler alert. You, you give the example of someone else I think you saw in, in your practice who had an eating disorder and, and the idea that often people will be told, well, there are starving people in the world and, and that's not helpful because both things are true. One doesn't cancel the other out. Do you think we have become more binary in our thinking? Are we less well equipped at holding two things in our heads at the same time? Yes, absolutely. And I think we can see this so clearly when it comes to the pandemic and recent events in the world that people have a very hard time, I think, seeing the gray. And it's either, you know, you're with me or against me, it's black or white. And I think that's why this topic also tends to incite a little bit of frustration in people because it's like, well, how can positivity be toxic? How can gratitude not be helpful? Um, All these things that we just believe are all good when, like you said, there's nuance to everything. It's, It's very hard to see anything in life as all good or all bad. You talk about the difference between feelings and emotions. And again, there's a lot of nuance there. And talking about things that you learn as a child, it was fascinating to hear you say that this is not something that you just know, you have to be taught it. Can you speak a little on this about what we are supposed to learn in childhood and what we should do as adults if perhaps we didn't learn that as a child? So we don't come out of the womb knowing how to experience our emotions. And emotions are really just uh, physical sensations uh, in the body, things that you're feeling, and then we give them a name or a label, which is what makes it a feeling. And that's really where I think people should start with themselves, with their children, is trying to create tolerance for bodily sensations and learning how to label them. So when I have butterflies in my stomach or sweaty palms or my heartbeat is racing and thinking about what might that mean for me? What information can I take from that? And really learning like when we need to investigate something further and when maybe it's just something we're feeling because we didn't get enough sleep or we need a glass of water or whatever it is that I find people are either totally shut down with their emotions or they're way too obsessive with checking into every single feeling that comes up. And again, with the gray in between, that's the space where I would like people to be is that middle road. That's interesting. And can you tell me about the importance of regulation? In your book, you use the example of Ali, a girl who pushes away 
all negative emotions because her mother was so in touch with her emotions and expressed them all so freely. I was sort of, I pondered on that for some time. So there is a, a middle ground, is there? How do we know, you know, how much is too much when it comes to the emotions? So when you notice that the way you're experiencing and expressing your emotions is hurting you in other areas of life. So possibly your relationships, your workplace, your ability to accomplish anything, that might be a sign that, okay, I need some better emotion regulation skills. I need different people in my life. Maybe I need a therapist. Like I need to bring in these other tools that allow me to feel my emotions and experience them, but not become so overly reactive to them that I'm unable to live my life or to get through anything. So that suppression is not good. But you mentioned Allie's mom in the book, you know, having these emotions that take up the whole room and really run your life are also not helpful. And so how does labeling our emotions help us to process them? What we have seen in in research on the brain is that when you label an emotion, it becomes known to you and then it makes the emotion less scary. When I'm able to say, oh, that's anxiety or that's fear, I know what that is and I know what to do with it, we then have control over what's going on and we are able to open ourselves up to resources and support. And what they've been able to show is that it really decreases activity in the amygdala and allows us, like I mentioned, to get into that driver's seat rather than having our emotions control us. If you don't know what you're feeling, then you don't know what to do with it. And it can feel like that's going to take over you. So it's just giving us some of that power back. I love that. I wonder if um, you could share a little why uh, complaining, which has quite a bad reputation, why why that actually might be a helpful tool as well. Complaining has such a bad reputation, but when it's done well, it can actually be really quite effective and helpful. And what it allows you to do is bond with other people. I know, you know, I just became a mom and I felt very connected and supported when I was able to complain about that with other moms or people going through it. It also allows you to identify where in your life you might need to make a change or do something. And so a lot of that, what we would call negative information, can be full of data to help us live our lives. That's so interesting. It's it's often said that, that sadness is almost like a creative prompt because you're seeing something that's wrong and you want to make a change about it. And I guess complaining has a similar function there you're you're thinking about where the problems are and that and that makes me think of what you write about work that actually negativity in the workplace or at least um, noticing problems is hugely undervalued especially in our in our drive for everyone to be super jazz hands happy in the workplace at all time actually you need people who find problems because they're going to find the pain points they're going to help you forward so perhaps we could talk about work I'm interested in negativity is not being celebrated in the workplace, but this might be missing a trick. Is that right? Yeah. And there's there's different levels of negativity in the workplace, right? I like to differentiate between the person who comes in and is always complaining about like the coffee flavors or things like that. And somebody who is really looking at what's going wrong here and what do we need to fix? And often I think people are silenced in the workplace in the name of 
a positive work culture or wanting to maintain groupthink that I talk about in the book. And when we give people a space to actually discuss what's wrong, they're able to come up with solutions and problem solve. And like you mentioned, find those pain points, which really incites creativity and problem solving and growth. Yeah. And you write about, again, like we talked about, if there's a shame around addressing problems or complaining or or talking about problems that you might be having, then people are less likely to speak up. And I and I was very struck when you said about people being afraid to ruin the vibe. If there is a company culture that is about this relentless positivity, then that's going to really suppress the uh, the input and the creativity of lots of employers employees. Sorry, absolutely. And and we see this happening, you know, with very serious issues in the workplace, whether it's sexism, racism, um, unfair wages, that, you know, when people complain, someone higher up might be like, you really just need to be a team player, like you need to just get your head back in the game. And I think sometimes the complaints that people are bringing forward are very real and legitimate. We just don't want to hear them. Yes. Can, can we talk a little about toxic positivity and discrimination, how how it, it diminishes lived experience? You, you write about, about racism and sexism in the book. Yes. During the pandemic, you know, when we had a lot of conversations about race and racism in the US, I noticed online... I was seeing this huge resurgence of people commenting, saying, can't we all just love each other? All we need is love. Let's just have peace. And this was such a good example of how we use toxic positivity to silence people. We're saying something very nice, very kind sounding and well-meaning. But when you're using that to respond to someone who's coming to you with a real issue, something that's impacting them and something that's very difficult for them. And saying these platitudes back, really what you're saying is, can you please be quiet? I don't want to hear about this. Like, let's not talk about it. And it helps maintain these certain systems because we're not actually getting to the root of the problem or talking about real solutions. Yeah, it absolutely does, doesn't it? It maintains the status quo because you're you're saying any sort of detraction from how things are is not welcome. Exactly. And we see this in so many other areas, right? When it comes to ableism, sexism, uh, any other type of prejudice where people respond in this way. And you talk about the link between toxic positivity and body positivity. Tell me why body neutrality is your preferred goal now. So the body positivity movement was started... Um, really with wonderful intentions. And I think the actual movement is great, but it was unfortunately swept up in this toxic positivity storm. And all of a sudden we're being told to love our bodies and love everything about them and be positive about our bodies. And in the same breath, the media is really also telling us, but you need to fix this about yourself or change this. And so I found it in practice to be extremely unattainable for the average person. And instead of always trying to love our bodies and be positive about them, the concept of body neutrality really just tells us to say, this is my body. I accept it. I don't really have to feel any way about it. Some days I might feel down. Some days I might feel happy. And this is what I'm going to do to live with my body in the way that's comfortable for me. 
And I think that's just much easier. Does that go hand in hand with the idea of radical acceptance? Yes, I think so, which I I talk about radical acceptance in the book, which is a part of dialectical behavioral therapy that tells us really to, we can accept what is without loving it or necessarily agreeing with it. And I think we can apply this to our bodies in the way that it's like, this is the size of my body. And society might try to tell me that my body is the wrong size or I need to change this about myself, but I only have this body. I I can't change that. And so I'm going to work to accept that. And I think it's kind of worth repeating because it's it's such a tricky concept to get your head around. I was talking to a friend about it over coffee today. And so it's the idea of you're accepting what it is, but you're not necessarily agreeing with it or liking it. I wonder how that differs from almost the stoic idea of you just take the world as it is and you learn to remain you know, tranquil waters throughout. Is it letting letting yourself off the hook rather? Is it stopping you from being an activist, I wonder? So the way that I like to use radical acceptance to kind of give us a little bit more power than what you're describing is that you can look at, here's the situation, you know, like the pandemic, for example. Okay, we were in a pandemic. This is hard. I don't love it. Here's what I don't like about it. And then saying, okay, now what do I have control over when I validate this feeling? What can I do after that? And that's where we might say, I'm going to do this for myself. I'm going to, you know, do something that I love. I'm going to take care of myself and try to accept what is and find what we can get, have access to and control within that acceptance. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. That helps to to clarify a tricky concept. And so how can we help others without resorting to toxic positivity, would you say? The best thing that you can do when you feel that urge coming over you to use toxic positivity is try to go for validation or understanding. And so validation might include things like, that makes sense. I hear you. This sounds hard you know, I wish I could make this better for you, like really trying to be in it with them. And then understanding is just trying to get to know what that person is going through and possibly how you can help them depending on the relationship. So asking them, what are you most worried about? What's the hardest part? Is there anything I can do to help you get through this? And instead of assuming that you know how they feel or what's happening for them, really just trying to let them describe it to you. And if anyone that's listening has been to therapy, you might notice that your therapist probably does this with you in a way. Like instead of telling you exactly what to do or what you should be feeling, they try to get you to walk that path by asking questions. And you make the very good point that it's you're making space for their pain, but you're not carrying it for them. I guess, again, like in therapy, you're not asking your therapist to take away those problems or to take them all on, but to just sit with you in them, which is a very difficult thing, right? I mean, your your, your Instagram handle, you know, the idea of sitting with, 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 you know, with you as well, but sitting with any kind of difficult emotion is something I think many of us are very unused to. How, how do we begin with, with being okay with that? I think a lot of it is practice. And I like to share that when I started working as a therapist, I was wildly uncomfortable sitting with people. I wanted to do anything I could to fix it. And I think that's part of why I became a therapist until I realized that I cannot do that. And so 
giving yourself permission to sit in that place with the person to just say, this is going to feel hard and not great for both of us. And even calling that out, I do this with my clients sometimes of like, this feels hard for me. I really want to fix this for you. So I can, I'm trying to understand how this must feel for you. And just creating that space that it is scary. It is valid and sharing that with one another. That's a really nice thing that you say to your clients. I think that's really <laughs> nice. Your patience, Thank right? You. I wonder, um, did Fleabag reach you in the US? You know, I've heard of it, but I haven't watched it. It's a show, right? Yeah, a TV show. Yeah, a leap of the imagination. But just the idea, I think a lot of people, certainly has been my experience. Well, I'll speak for me that when, when I have been to therapy, I quite often, you know, have a, I end up with a therapist who I, I like, otherwise I wouldn't be going. And quite often I would love them to just take the reins of my life and just, <laughs> you know, sort it out. And there's one point in, in Fleabag where she asks a hot priest as it happens, but just, just tell me what to do, just tell me what to do. And I think that can be very, very compelling and attractive. So the fact that you're even saying to your patients, you know, <laughs> I wish I could fix this for you, but I can't. Yeah. That's, um, yeah. I, I wonder how your approach to, you, you talked a bit about how your approach to, to happiness and toxic positivity has, has changed since you started training to be, to be a psychotherapist. But I wonder in in terms of writing the book at a time when you were also pregnant? I mean, there's a lot going on. There. There's a lot to unpack. How, how have you, how's that emotional roller coaster been for you? You know, I think uh, it was really a coping mechanism for me during, I was pregnant during, you know, the real dark times of the pandemic here and writing a book and it gave me something to focus on. But it's very interesting that, you know, now that my son's been born, the book is out in the world. I had these huge emotions come up where I think everything I had been suppressing over the last like year and a half just all hit me once people started reading the book. And it just goes to show that no matter how much you try to, you know, hack it away, it's going to show up at some point and your, your body and your mind are going to make you deal with those feelings. I'm always fascinated by that, how how the rhetoric and the reality measure up. You you know all of the the, the psychological background of, of the experiences you may be encountering and and you've worked in that practice for long enough and yet you're human and so you're still susceptible. <laughs> it's The work is never done, right? It, exactly. Yeah, and, and you get to live out your own uh, work sometimes. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> and has anything surprised you? I'm always so shocked as a therapist at how much I learn every single day, just interacting with people. But while writing this book, I was so surprised by the history of positive thinking and really how deep this runs. And I feel like each day I'm seeing new ways that this is showing up around us. Oh, so tell us about the history. So you mentioned it, it's sort of way back to the formation of of the United States and, and certainly in my research into sadness in particular, the US attitude to sadness has kind of been been set for a long time now. But what what have you learned? So positivity really got its start in in religion. And that's mainly just because that was the prominent cultural force at the time that everyone was involved in. And it was this idea that after Calvinism, which was very dark and doom and gloom, that they rebranded and switched to this like God wants you to be happy and God is positive, so you should be positive too. And from there, we saw 
positivity move into healthcare and, you know, you can think your way into being well, especially women who were sick. It was usually because they weren't thinking correctly or there was something wrong with them. These women, I don't know. I know. Silly women, (laughs) right? Just always getting sick with their thoughts. But (laughs) um, then we, you know, you see like Norman Vincent Peale and this whole, like, you have to think positive to be rich and successful and get everything you want. And I think from there, much like diet culture, positivity culture has just continued to shapeshift into these different types of wellness. And now we're seeing it on social media in in a very similar but different way. Yeah. And, and it feels as though it's sort of everywhere on, on social media. What, what are we to do with that? How are we to manage the influx of that as, as people who are on social media? I think it's important to just read everything with a critical eye. Um, I tell people to look out for any absolute statements, things that use always, never, this is the only way to do something or oversimplifying a very difficult concept. So statements like just be happy, everything happens for a reason. You know, we have extremely high rates of suicide and depression. And if curing those things was that simple, I don't think we would be where we are. So trying to look out for that and and really just, you know, curating your social media experience in a way that helps you think, um, helps you become more aware and also inspires and empowers you. Thank you. I think that's really helpful. And thinking about, it's interesting hearing you talk about your work and and you you write in the book about how when you're you're dealing with people who will report back about their office life or their, their high pressure corporate job. And it must be interesting being being in a different field, not being in that office environment. I wonder what your take is on the sort of enforced fun in many offices these days, especially <laughs> as people are coming back after the after the pandemic. And you're seeing, I kind of thought we were done with the whole beanbags and ping pong tables, but apparently not. Apparently, this is what offices think is going to help after the pandemic. The idea uh, of everybody, the pressure to be happy at work. Can you talk about this and how it can leave us feeling, well, just a bit meh and a bit disconnected? I also thought we were done with this, but I (laughs) saw so much of this during the pandemic. The amount of stories I heard about like games on Zoom and costumes and whatever, it was like just wild. I think what happens is, is that people are being forced to perform in the workplace when we know that there's something very difficult going on in the world. And instead of addressing that, we're kind of just putting a bow on it or trying to pretend it's not happening. And I want to validate that it is very hard to be an employer and in charge of people during a time like this. But what I have found is that when you create space for people to vent, to complain, to talk about what's going on with them, when you validate that and show up as a human being in the workplace, it tends to lessen the amount that people are complaining and allows them to stay connected to their mission at work because they feel supported and like their boss gets what's going on with them and their life and isn't trying to like shut them up. Yes, it's that idea of Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar talks about your your whole being and being able to bring not quite your authentic self, we hear that term a lot, but your whole being, which is going to be happy and sad and, and angry and all of the 
the emotions. And you talk about some research from Harvard about how actually when leaders are more inclusive and humble and and get employees to speak up, people even learn faster and you're more productive in the workplace. That was fascinating to read about that. I know. It's it's very cool. You know, it really all boils down to like just being a nice, kind human. I think we overcomplicate this stuff so much sometimes. And then you see that research and it's like, oh, well, that makes a lot of sense why that would feel good and work. Yes, it's just don't be an asshole. Just be a nice person. Yeah, it's (laughs) kind of simple. Yeah, Uh I love that. And I wonder what uh, this is. You know, this is a podcast about how to be sad. And my my research into it happened after years of looking into happiness and writing about happiness and looking at different cultural concepts, and then realizing that I was just as guilty as the next person of of pushing down like a beach ball, pushing down those so called negative emotions because I had not been taught how to handle them and and the community I grew up in it was all about ignoring them and avoiding them at all costs and so it's been a a really kind of late awakening for me to to learn how to be sad as an adult and how that can be a useful helpful thing and and now I'm finding different coping strategies that do not evolve completely ignoring or avoiding Mm -hmm. that emotion and I wonder with with all you know what helps you when you are feeling low Connecting with other people that support me and just allow me to talk about it is really helpful. Um, I've been in and out of therapy throughout my life when I need it. And also really just getting back to the basics has been so important to me. I noticed during the pandemic of keeping this baseline of going outside, drinking water, um, getting enough sleep, making sure I eat throughout the day. Like these things that are so simple that if I disrupt those things, it is so much harder for me to deal with my emotions. Again, so that's so interesting. It's just the really simple things. <laughs> we are very simple machines, then it turns out. We just need to, you know, put some fuel in, give it some rest. Things will be better. Right, exactly. Getting back <laughs> to the basics. Every time I tell people to just start there. Yes. Yeah, which is sometimes not what we want to hear, is it? We want it to be some sort of whizzy, quick fix, but actually it's just the slightly less glamorous, normal stuff. <laughs> right. And and finally, I like to end by asking all of my guests, knowing all that you know now, what advice would you give your 21-year-old self about how to be sad well? Oh my gosh, to stop hiding that you feel sad and to talk about it with other people. I think I felt so alone at that age. Like I was the only one that was struggling with whatever it was at the time. And now I look back and realize how I was definitely not the only one and it would have been so much better to talk about it. Yes. Isn't that, is that's a, a pretty, many of us, I think, experience that. I wonder when you felt like you weren't alone. When did that ease I think it was after becoming a therapist, I started hearing how other people were thinking and talking. And I was like, oh my gosh, I feel like this sometimes too. And I'm very lucky to be in a field where I can get some of my own things affirmed, you know, by my clients. But now, especially talking to younger people, I work with a lot of people in that age group, you know, early to mid twenties. And I see how scared and insecure they feel. And I remember that feeling. I always say I wish I could get like all my clients and put them in a room so they could meet each other and not feel so alone because I hear so many of the same stories every day. 
oh, that would be fascinating. I know. Oh, if only <laughs> will the ethics not permit it? Can we not exactly. arrange that? If only hippo and all that would allow. <laughs> Okay, so one day, a big virtual party where everyone can get together, and one day when we can all hug each other again, big group hug, tell each other, you're not alone, we're all in this together, somehow. Exactly. Wonderful. Thank you so much. A real pleasure to speak to you today. Um, And everybody should read Toxic Positivity and learn all about what we should be avoiding. Thank you so much, Winnie. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please do rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. It really helps other people find us and helps us to be able to make more podcasts. The book How To Be Sad is out now wherever you get your book delights. And I hope you are doing okay today. Okay.